We're back with the Deal Flow Podcast. Ryan Ray here as always. And my guest is, would you say it was the greatest deal flow originator of all time? Smartest guy on the East Coast. You, you had some titles in there you wanted me to throw in. I forgot. I forgot them though. Which, uh-huh. which one are we going by? Sir? Dude, just call, you can call me the cold call kid. Like whatever you want to do. I mean, that, that's where the money comes from. And, you know, that's that's what makes stuff happen. Awesome, man. Okay. Do a quick intro who you are. What you do, and let's get into it. Yeah, so uh, my name's Alexander Pryor. Um, shit, man, I've been making cold calls and you know doing deals in real estate since you know I turned freshly eighteen. Um, and uh, now we've gone from you know just flipping a ton of houses and wholesaling a little bit to you know right now I've got currently you know three hundred acres that we're entitling for about six hundred homes, um, and we're partnering with large builders um, in order to kind of finish those projects out. Nice, nice. Okay, so let me just ask a couple questions there. Uh, terms should be familiar, but wholesaling, uh, you're not flipping, you're not buying and building, I'm guessing. You're just, you're getting under an assignment and you're selling to someone else. Uh, that's what you're doing then. Are you a real estate agent? You do real estate work like that? Where, where all do you, you come in at? So I do a lot of different things, but just about everything is centered around generating deal flow and, um, you know, just originating off-market deals, you know, that, you know, wouldn't have happened without that. So I have a call center. Um, right now, we personally, I have about eight to 12 cold callers at any time. And we are scaling and growing pretty rapidly. Um, and so originally, we started out, we only did single family, because that's the simplest thing to get into easy to finance, um, easy to find buyers for. So we were we were wholesaling. Um, we, my business partner is also an agent. Um, and so we have a couple agents that work for him under our, under our umbrella, um, that sort of work as our acquisition agents as well. They work explicitly just for us, whether it's off market or it's one of our leads, we turn into a listing, um, or something like that. So kind of like, sort of like a hybrid brokerage model on that end. Um, but I focus more along the lines of the bigger stuff, you know, what can we do in terms of, you know, raising capital to take down a big deal or, what are going to be the big liquidity events that, you know, kind of give us the capital to do bigger and, and better stuff? Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So I want to talk about cold calling for a second. Let's come back to real estate. Uh, more of what you're doing in a minute. Um, you know, so we do off-market deal flow origination as well. Uh, and we mainly do that for, you know, uh, M&A transactions for businesses. We do some commercial real estate, not where you're playing at. What we found is we don't have a call center. We we use email. Um, we found that trying to get someone on the phone, they you know who knows where they're at. Hey, you want to sell your business? Is really awkward. So we've we've shied away from that. But cold calling for real estate. I mean, we've had some success um, with the off market for commercial real estate stuff. Not nothing to write home about. Um, but cold calling for real estate, I think people give it a bad name. But for single family homes, especially. Email doesn't work. It's it's what you have to do to be successful in that market, and so it, it kind of gets people get on Twitter or whatever. They say, "Oh, this is the best way," and it's very much industry specific in what you're trying to do, who the person is. Um, you know, B two B cold emailing works. B two C is very very tough, and and it's it's a B two C play with a with a with a wholesale flip. So I, I can I can see why cold calling is just, is crushing it there. Yeah. So I will say that we we do call on and dabble in just about any asset you can kind of think of in terms of real estate. Single family is the bread and butter, um, primarily for our own operations and our own capital. 
but our approach does change between asset classes. So for single family, it, you, you have to, you have to stratify, you know, and, uh, I forgot the term, but create a persona around who are you going after, you know, standard within any kind of marketing, um, the standard single family owner that you're going to get a, a decent deal from, whether from a flip or, you know, a wholesale or, you know, whatever your disposition strategy is, um, they're, they're the average Joe. They, they typically, they don't have a lot of money. Um, and they, they just want surety because typically these are going to be some, you know, distressed, you know, kind of sellers or situations. So you think about the average person and, you know, they probably spend eight to 12 hours a day on their phone, whether it's answering phone calls, um, or texting, texting does work very well, but regulations have pretty much stifled, um, you know, a lot of people being able to use that as effectively, you know, as they could in the past. So we have dabbled in that as well. And it worked amazingly until the regulations changed, of course. Um, but when we go after something like industrial, you know, in terms of cold calling, it's no longer a, hey, you know, you know, call them up, you know, get a price, get the condition, all that stuff. Now you have to look towards building that relationship and building that authority that, you know, you're not going to waste their time. So if we're calling on a $10 million warehouse, you know, it's, hey, man, you know, as opposed to, you know, are you ready to sell in 30 days or any kind of, you know, script language like that? It's it's more along the lines of, hey, man, it looks like you got a great piece here. Um, you know, I don't know what your plans are, you know, in the future for it, but I'd like to at least just make you an offer. And we kind of look for the absolute lowest ask we can, because we can say sell to single family. It's much harder to say sell to someone on, you know, I'm sure, you know, commercial real estate um, where the transactions are much more complicated because when I think of selling, you know, I think of all the paperwork, having to go to closings, having to hire and retain attorneys, having to do all this and all that. Um, and it, it's just a much lower ask to just, you know, receive an offer and then go from there. Okay. Yeah. In, in it is, it's interesting. There was a, a thing on Twitter, uh, gosh, a while back and someone was asking about, you know, what's the most valuable spot to be in. And and this guy was saying, well, to be the investor is the best spot. And I thought, you know, I get what he's saying, but the, the, the deal flow originator is pretty, pretty good <laughs> because yeah. as an investor, I have to be right and competent in this investment thesis and it has to go right as the originator. I might have seven different theses I'm working for. And if they all go great, great. If one goes great, I still didn't lose. Um, so I think the originator space, it's 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 more of a grind as you know. But man, it it is a fantastic spot to be in to kind of leverage yourself. It's almost like buying one of those uh you know, like a mutual fund almost. You know, you have all these people that you're working for, and you don't have to be an expert in every potential thesis. You just have to be able to go find the deal and secure it for them. So I I I think it's an undervalued uh, spot in in what what we see in in the uh, in the industry. I I completely agree, and that's the position I've. Although now my personal focus is more on the GP side, especially with our our entitlements and stuff, because you know these are going to be exits, you know, in the eight figures, um, which is pretty pretty insane. Going from you know smaller deals, you know, below below three million, let's say, um, and a couple industrial, larger than that, of course. Mm -hmm. to doing this but you know also 
I've doubled down and focused throughout this process of, you know, growing on Twitter, going from, you know, essentially nobody who had no idea what I was doing. I was just spitballing everything I could mm. to private equity groups, you know, reaching out every single day. Hey, man, we want to do this together, do that um, to where now all I have to do is go and get the deal. I need to know what the criteria are. I already have the systems in place. We go and we get the deal. And then, you know, we uh, we secure an equity position or, you know, kind of a cash fee on doing that deal that I didn't have to raise capital for. I didn't have to, you know, put together a whole, like you mentioned earlier, investment thesis. All I had to do was get the deal. Um, and so it really is an attractive spot to be in, especially when you're working with limited capital. Now, you, you touched on something there, um, being part of the GP. Um I'm in a GP in a, a small uh, private equity fund that does uh, mainly oil and gas and mineral uh, acquisition stuff. Um, when you, what we've seen with PE, and I think some of the, the problem is if you can't get some kind of stake is there's a lot of PE out there that will look at everything you send them. You know, that's what they say. I'll look at everything you send them. What did you find to be successful? Say, you know, I'm not going to send you stuff just so that you might look at it because in PE, if you're listening, I understand why you say that. You get a lot of deals sent your way, but from my standpoint, it's not valuable for me. I, a real story. Uh, PE, we, you know, we, we talked to. They said, "Yeah, send us something." We had a deal. No one didn't fit anybody. We sent it to him. He comes. He comes back. Goes, "Hey, can you do you have a sim for it?" I'm like, "Well, we don't do sims. That's not that's not the business we're in. Like, this is this is the opportunity. Is is it is it worth you talking to them?" He's like, "Well, what do they do?" I'm like, "Well." You've got the web, like you have what you need to decide if this is worth a phone call or not. We've got the, we've got the revenue, we've got the margin, we've got all the, and, and so we've kind of, we shy away from dealing, we would like to work with more PE, but we also shy away from sending them deals because we get a lot of, oh yeah, I'll look at it and they never take it forward. How did you overcome that? So it's a lot of churn. So a lot of them, so a lot of the, the business practice with, um, you know, Part of the acquisition side of the buy side with a lot of real estate private equity guys is talk to as many brokers as you can, right? That is how they source their deals primarily. Um, and then that kind of puts us in the category of being a broker um, to an extent in terms of we're still at the end of the day, some sort of middleman for the deal. Um, and th yes, there you will always encounter tire cakers or, or time wasters that don't move or execute on a deal. One way around that is charge a retainer. I mean, look, it costs us a lot of money and a lot of time and effort to bring these opportunities there in the first place. So have them put skin in the game to show that they're serious. And it's not just about the money or, you know, covering the expenses. It's it's more about having a partner in with the process um, so that you're not just busting your balls, um, you know, sourcing all these different deals that you, you can't do anything with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what we say. Hey, if you want to pay us, or you know, the retainer's nominal for the deal flow we could bring. Um, but I think you're, you're you're dead on there. It's it's the thing where we we're looking for a partner because uh, in what we're doing, and I'm guessing what you're doing is you're building trust with this person to get them to you know sign an agreement or take a phone call or, or to, to go to go down this process with you. And if I say I have a buyer, if you say you have a buyer, and then you sent to said buyer and said buyer does nothing. Well, you've got to go back to this person and keep them interested somehow. And you've, you know, and so it kind of gets lost in the mix that the work that that you're doing 
uh, and that kind of our space that we work in to get, uh, you know, mutually is, man, it, it's, it's tough because you got to be able to trust, trust that you are a legitimate source of deal flow from their perspective, which is can bring a buyer or an investor or whatever it might be. And so um, I do think that probably it's underappreciated on the PE side. And like you say, anyone who sells us, send me anything you got, they get nothing that I got. Like that, that is the surefire way for me to never send you a deal if you say, send me everything you got. It's just, you're not going to look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so you, real estate, you kind of expanded into this. Now you got some GP positions, which changes it, right? They're skin the game then. You, know, you get to see behind the curtain and what's going on. Um, what's your read of this? We're recording this on the 25th of 2024, about in probably two weeks, but uh, who knows what will happen. <laughs> After 2020, you just can't predict, you know, a few weeks yeah. of the same. What's your read right now for real estate? Uh, a lot of interest, not interest. Uh, what's your What's your read there? So we since we are in several different asset classes, kind of mostly focused in the southeast um, and in Texas. Right now, I am getting a lot more traction on land, which I've pivoted to in the past, you know, six to nine months, um, because a lot of developers have been shaken out by interest rates. Um, and, and construction costs primarily because we were in a zero interest rate environment and then we come in now and boom, it's ballooned. Now a mortgage is seven and a half percent as opposed to, you know, two and a quarter. Um, so single family has taken a big hit, but we still have a massive shortage, um, you know, for, for available single family housing. Um, so I think it's very market dependent, especially my area in the Florida panhandle, um, the the national builders just can't get enough. They they cannot get enough lots to build on. So we're a little sheltered there. Um and I would say just focus on where where the demand is because yes, real estate prices and values, you know, if we're, you know, especially commercial real estate on a cap rate basis, um, over the cost of debt, you know, are have fallen significantly in the past couple of years. Um I would say focus on where there's still growth. I mean, I'm looking at demographic data more than ever on where there is still growth and where there is still demand um, and where the numbers make sense to, you know, properly expand. But I would say it's it's weird. Like, I'll talk to anybody. And, you know, if you want to talk general kind of market, you know, terms, knowledge, et cetera, it's just weird. Nobody knows where anything is headed. Mm-hmm. The best we can do is keep our heads down and execute, you know, where we have a high degree of certainty. Yeah, and it's it's funny because on the national builder front, we have a we have a seller who's thinking about selling. They work for a national builder. They do between seven to nine hundred homes a year, and man, that is a tough business to get people to look at. It's a tough business. Yeah. And where I'm at, which is south of Fort Worth, Texas, I mean, there's you know we're I don't want to say a recession proof area because that's not true, but it is kind of a unique. It's more retirement, a lot a lot of money in the area, uh, not like you know, like Malibu or, you know, like that, but just, just, you know, upper middle class type stuff. And so there's a ton of new homes that are trying to be put in here. And so we look at it, but man, there's, there's a lot of growth here, but that's not the country, but it's interesting that you say that because, you know, these, these guys are seeing, you know, multi-year commercial projects. It's not commercial project, it's commercial client, but multi-year single family home projects because they work for national builders. But from a buy side perspective in the market, there's not a lot of interest there. And it's like, that actually might be the place to be. That's not someone who's just throwing up stick homes here and there, you know, for people like you and me. It's it's a it's a different market, but it still is a tough sell, despite the fact they're building a ton of homes. Yeah, I, I agree. And I know 
based on conversations, a lot of regional builders and stuff is the national guys have been rolling up like crazy. I mean, if you think of your, you know, of your Horton or something like that, you know, one of their biggest uh, ways of getting a hold of more buildable lots is is always going to be buying the lots from a smaller builder in the area that doesn't have their, you know, insanely low, you know, construction costs, um, insanely low development costs. They they can't compete uh, margin wise. And as soon as interest rates went up, I mean, their margins got obliterated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how far out, you mentioned demographics, like how far out, you, you, you're you working on a mandate, right? So you, you have clients who are saying, this is what we're, this is what we're thinking, but you mentioned you're doing uh, demographic data. Obviously you're, you're a bright guy. You're at, you know, you're doing mathematics with John Hopkins. So you're, you're you can do all that. A little, tiny little, uh, basically like a preschool room that I'm uh, living in here. <laughs> But, you know, I try to rub two sticks together and formulate a sentence. That's kind of what I'm doing on a daily basis. Uh, but how much of what you think you do is taking the thesis and finding the spots versus the thesis is this, this is where we want to go, go make it, it, it successful here? Typically, when it when it comes to, you know, finding finding and sourcing deals with a lot of these other like kind of private equity type partners, they already have something in mind. So, you know, if you think of like a, uh, like a Zenith iOS, you know, for example, um, I know Alex, he posted, you know, uh, I think last week, you know, they're, they're looking for, you know, iOS sites in cities that have a, like a NFL sports team, any, any city with an NFL team. So there's all kinds of different ways of looking at this stuff. Um, but typically, you know, for, if we want to stay in the industrial, you know, asset class, um, it's going to be like a top 50 MSA. So regardless of, of any additional data, um, when it comes to a lot more of the single family stuff, then that's where I think a lot of the demographic data comes, comes into play. Um, you know, which I did a, a research study on last semester, um, with a bunch of data analytics and stuff, which I definitely need to post on Twitter, um, yeah. in terms of, you know, how, the median income plays a, plays a huge part in like you know housing affordability um you know as well as like rising land costs and you know certain msas yeah um but i think that demo demographics matter the most for kind of residential stuff mm. yeah, it, one of the things i like about this space is you have a thesis you have something someone wants to go find you, you go work on that but you also get to talk to the people who are in the thesis right mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so you, you have a lot of conversations and you hear data. And so how do you find, like when we talk to small business owners, we don't hear, we hear a lot of maybe, you know, 2021 was rough or 2022 was rough or, or whatever, but there's, but we don't come across a ton of distressed businesses. Maybe they just don't respond. I don't know. Um, but by and large, if we were only polling the people that we talked to, which is anecdotal, of course, you would think the economy is doing okay. Right. But if you get on Twitter, you see there's mixed results. Does that ever, uh, do you, how do you balance that data of the people that you're talking to? Because obviously they're probably trying to, to sell you a, a good positive story, right? They want the most money. Uh, how, how do you try to balance that out when you're making uh, making an offer or putting together you know, a term sheet or whatever it might be? Cost of capital has risen. Values have fallen. Like that's that's the thesis you, you have to stick with. Like you don't, you don't want to have to, let's say hypothetically, you had to go before an investment committee. You know, let's say we're in, in, in PE, you had to go to IC. 
Um, and and you you have to be able to defend everything that you know you've you've kind of promised or guaranteed to you know this potential seller. Um, in terms of balancing, I mean, one one way to look at it is let's look at all the brokerages. You know, brokerage revenues are down what sixty something percent since last year. Um, it, it, it's been an insane pitfall in terms of who's trading, how much they're trading, um, and transaction volume is down significantly. So that is one way to also, you know, go, go to these people and, you know, try and get some form of discount to the point where it'll make sense. Um, but in terms of balancing, like how, you know, how we think, how we operate, um, it, it's so, it's so contingent upon the situation everything is in. So like I mentioned earlier, everything is weird. It's it's turned upside down. We don't know where things are going. We can make all the guesses in the world, but in my uh, two tenths of a decade experience, um, it, it's a little hard to have a crystal ball and predict where you know where things are going to go. No, right, and and that's again part of the reason I like the space is I don't have to predict where things are going. I just got to figure out people who think they can predict it and work for them. And some of them are going to be right. I hope they're all right. Obviously, some of them won't be. That's just the way things go. Um, so where do you see yourself going from here? I mean, obviously you're very successful in the space. You're gener generating a lot of deal flow. Um, you got a call center, multiple asset classes. Is this the next 10 years you're going to do deal flow or at some point you're going to go to be the, the person with the thesis? When does that transition happen? So we're, we're doing both right now. So we are slowly making that transition, obviously with my current, um, kind of pre-development deals. Um, and we are looking to expand that significantly. Um, so we're already looking into, you know, other states, other areas, and just going deep where we know the markets. So I am still scaling up our, our kind of deal flow operations, um, and more along the lines of the call center, um, until we, you know, exit a lot more of these kind of larger deals. And as far as where I see it going, it's, I see it going more along the route of, you know, becoming more as a, um, more, more as a traditional GP. Um, because a lot of the deal flow stuff, it's not as scalable as it could be, um, as soon as you have access to capital in terms of the opportunity cost. So I think it's a great springboard, um, to kind of get you to where you want to go, but in terms of, and you can definitely make a lifelong career, build a huge consultancy out of it, but the, the, um, amount of time and effort that would take would be a big opportunity cost as opposed to, you know, pursuing these, these great deals for myself and executing on our thesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've wondered if there will be a, a great, a great PE roll up of deal flow originators, you know, yeah. like they just come in because the value, a good, a good firm can bring to PE is, you know, if all the numbers you believe uh, that are put out there are true, which is, off-market deals sell for less than broker deals and, and all that stuff. If you just took all that to be true, uh, it would seem that for PE, the cost to go up, you know, invest heavily uh, in a deal flow for, uh, firm, uh, make them part of the GP, but make them almost exclusive, but then infuse cash and let them grow and grow their thesis. I've wondered if, if we might see something like that in the future where there's a, there's a role. A lot of many firms are like that, like us out there, but I've wondered if that's, if that's going to be something we see in the next three to five years. Yeah, no, that'd be definitely something interesting to see. Okay, so a couple final questions here for you. Um, there's a book, Fanatical Prospecting, and if you want to get in this business, that's a great one to read. Um, 
let's talk about cold calling. Just go back to that for a second. Um, people, I don't care their opinion, opinion on it is. My thesis on cold calling is really, if you're going to do it, it doesn't take that long to get to where you can be good at it. And, you know, I'm not cold calling now. It's not part of what, what we're doing for our clients. But when I was doing it, I'd have Netflix on one screen or whatever I was doing on one screen and this, the dollar on the other screen. And people were getting really scared of it. And it's like, man, after you get hung up on 15 times or whatever, and you've gone through the pitch 30, 40 times, it's, it's, it's one of the least thinking processes you can do unless there's just people answering all day long. And that's not always the case. Uh, what advice do you give to people who want to do cold calling more regularly? So it's, it's a give and a take. So like you mentioned earlier, it's, you have to get over that initial fear. I had to force myself because when I first started, you know, I was cold calling in a shed, um, a, a backyard shed in, in the freezing cold. And I would take, I would spend hours preparing for each call. I, I was so nervous because before this, you know, I was just a computer nerd. I, I had little to no social skills. I had to create them. So it's just about getting started and keeping up the momentum because you will, there are no specific tricks or, you know, advice I would say besides just start the snowball now because you want it to get as big as possible, as fast as possible. Um, and a lot more will come from cold calling than you would expect other than just leads or deals. You'll meet new partners. You'll meet new friends, um, new opportunities that you never would have thought possible. Um, and just just keep the confidence and just keep it going. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it doesn't probably take, unless you've got like severe, severe anxiety maybe, it doesn't take as long as you might think to get to get over this the, the awkwardness of it. Uh, and then you've got to get the pitch down. And that probably doesn't take, if you're paying attention to what they're saying, what you're saying, how they respond to what's going on. And what you eventually realize is one day someone answers the phone and you go, you know, whatever your script is. And they go, yeah, I want to talk to you. You're like, oh, it was just, I had to call 622 people to get in front of someone. That's, that was it. That was really all it was. It wasn't this magical, uh, I hate all the, the, there's a video on Twitter last night. Some guy cold calling someone and he's browbeating him. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. Whatever. It's really simply a numbers game. 99% of the time there is some, there is some massaging. There is some closing. I'm not trying to diminish that, but we get people. They respond back. This is exactly what I'm looking for. We might have sent out 3,000 emails to get that, though, right? And so you talked. So it's it's really just a numbers game. And the more people believe that, and they do it, the easier it becomes. And then and then it's almost just like you know, it's second nature almost. Exactly. And you know, at this point, it, it's second nature. Like I still make cold calls myself, um, primarily for like large land tracks that are mm -hmm. exceptionally prime. And you know, I approach every call as if I'm calling an old friend. And this is what I teach my callers as well. You know, it, it's a standard, hey, what's up, man? How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. I don't make a pitch. I don't do anything. It's, you know, hey, I, uh, you know, I drove by a piece of land, you know, the other day. And, you know, I want to see if I could walk it with you. You know, I'm really interested. I've got some other, you know, land of in the area. Um, even if you don't want to offer, I'd love to just meet you and, uh, you know, explore what you have going on here. And you'll get a meeting every time because you're taking a very human approach and very conversational. No, that, that's that's fantastic because uh, where we play at, it's it's, it's interesting because what we do is is uh, we're already we're already paid by someone else, and so we hop on the phone and say we have nothing to pitch you. We're just here to learn. You know, they respond to an email; they're interested, but we say, yeah, we have nothing to pitch you. We're you know, someone's already paid us. 
we're here to find out information and the temperature goes way down. Right. And so if you can get, if you can make that first call, that first contact, a non-pitch, which is tricky, but if you can do that, I mean, yeah, I can see the success going through the roof. Okay. Um, who should, final question, who should and who should not get into the deal flow space? As far as who should not, I would say if you can, if you get easily overwhelmed because, and if you are very emotionally reliant on your success as form of your self-worth, which is something we, we may all struggle with. Because at any point in time, I could be working 10 deals, 20 deals, 100 deals, which is very unrealistic, but sometimes it feels like that. Or I could go three months and I don't have a single deal. So you have to be consistent. You have to put in the reps. Um, and if that sounds like something you're you're willing to wait for and not get that instant gratification, um, I think you have a really good shot at succeeding. Yeah. Well, I'll follow up with this. I guess I said one last question. This is the last one. What I did when I got into the space was I had to make my KPI really low, a low bar. And for me, it was a booked meeting because I knew if I booked enough meetings, I would have success, right? And so I just made it so it's not closed deals. It's not money in the bank. That's That comes, but I have to just book meetings. And that allows that momentum to keep going uh, was making it a really low bar. I mean, it's not easy to do, but it's just a low bar as far as like a book meeting. Okay, if I can just do that, I'm I'm heading in the right direction. Enough of those, they will turn over. And that, that was kind of a trick I played myself. Because you, you're right, it can take a while to close an actual deal. But if I keep booking meetings, I'm just going to close a deal. Yeah, and it takes time. Yeah. You know, you'll be lucky if the first deal, even if you get solid something on the first day, that you'll be lucky if it closes within six months. You need time. That's exactly right. Okay. Twitter, we're going to link to your Twitter. Uh, give out your your, your X or whatever we're calling it these days. Twitter handle. Uh, where else can people find you at? Right now, just Twitter. Um, you know, I'm I'm hoping to expand to something like YouTube or something in the future. Um, but you know, my goal is I'm not selling anything to anybody. You know, I'm just here to make friends. And then if it just so happens that we can do some deals or something together, that's fantastic. But I love making friends. And I love helping people out. So in the future, maybe YouTube something like that. Um, but right now, just just Twitter. Awesome. We will link to your Twitter profile in the show notes. Of course, that's all at 5 Biz. Alex, has been great, man. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.